And so as we set our hearts and minds to think about the reality of Christian conduct, I, I want to just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to dedicate or ask Him to attend to our time as we dedicate this time to Him. Father, we thank You once again that we can be together as Your people and that we can study Your Word together, that we can understand it because we have the Spirit of God illumining our hearts and our minds to know exactly what it says, and then to take those truths and begin to let them infiltrate and filter down through every implication and area of our life where it needs to be affected. So thank you for that. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for bringing us together to hear these things. It is no mistake. You are a sovereign God providentially bringing us here this day so that we personally, individually, and corporately would hear these things. So challenge us with them. Change us by them. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, as you already know, over the past several weeks, we have been addressing this crucial doctrine of Christian conduct. Christian conduct. And if I was to ask you this morning to give an overarching description of what Christian conduct is, what would your description be? In other words, how would you describe the Christian life? How would you describe the Christian life? How is it to be lived? I've been thinking about this over the last week as I have been preparing for our time together this morning, and it's interesting to me how the Bible describes the Christian life. Because it uses words like this, obedience, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, as obedient children love one another. It uses words that we don't like to hear, like submission, <gasps> submit, Ephesians chapter 5, and numerous other passages and scriptures that speak to that very issue. It describes the life as a walk, or a, a direction, really, is that's what the word means, a direction in life. Psalm chapter Psalm one and Ephesians chapter four. How bless Psalm one, how blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffer. It's a process, the Bible calls it, a process of putting off what is old, the old life, the habits of the flesh, the ways of the flesh, the thinking of the flesh, the, the speaking of the flesh. It's, it's putting off the old and putting on the new, Ephesians chapter 4 says. It says it's a life of endurance or a life of perseverance, James chapter 1 tells us. The Christian life is a life whereby we must stand fast, Ephesians chapter 6. We stand fast in our life. It's a, a diligent effort kind of life, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and following. With all diligence in your faith, put on these things, do these things. Acts 2 tells us it's a life of devotion. A devoted life. The life of continual running. Hebrews chapter 12. It's a race set before us. It's a life of rest. Ephesians 4 or Hebrews 4 says, enter into this rest. 
And yet Philippians 2 tells us it's a life whereby we are working out our salvation. Working out our salvation, not earning our salvation, but living as a, in the fear of God, working it out day by day, practicing what we have been taught to do. Ephesians 6 says it's a battle. In fact, we would even say it's a war. It's a war. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Because it's a war. It's a contending for truth kind of life. That's how Jude put it. I wanted to write about our common salvation, but I need to write about something else, that you contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a contending life. It's a life whereby we contend for the truth. We are battling to uphold the truth and stand with the truth and speak the truth. And here in Romans chapter 12, Paul says it's a self-sacrificing life. In other words, it is a life that understands what it was prior to salvation. The Christian life is a life that understands that prior to salvation, we were therefore once lost. And therefore now, because we understand that, it is a life motivated by an understanding of the mercy of God and an understanding of the grace of God that has been lavished upon us in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 says. So that this life now is laser-focused on loving God without hypocrisy, Paul says. Love God without hypocrisy. Hate every vestige of evil that we find, whether it be finding it in our own hearts, hiding behind some secret closet door that we refuse and don't really want to open, or we find evil in some other place outside. And from that, thereby then clinging to all things that reflects the very character and goodness of God. Cling to that which is good, Paul says. So for us as Christians to assume in any way that the Christian life is in some way an effortless life, to say that in some way that the Christian life is a just let go and let God kind of life, To say that once you are saved, you can just sit back and coast. That is to say and believe in one of the greatest deceptions of Satan himself. The only kind of fish that are going downstream are dead fish. Let's remember that. You only know a fish is alive in a stream when they're swimming upstream. They're going against the current. This is the Christian life, the Christian life, the life of growing in and practicing holy living. That kind of life is a moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, never ending this side of heaven kind of life. It's going to cost you your own self-preserving death grip that you have on your own self, and that you had on your own self since birth. That's what it's going to cost you. So it is a life of dying to self every second of every day. And that attitude, which was the attitude of Jesus Christ, that same attitude, as Philippians tells us, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That attitude, the attitude of Jesus Christ is to be reflected in us. 
It is to be reflected in our conduct. It is to be reflected in how we live. And we have been equipped by God, by our loving Father, to function in that way through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to each and every one of us. None of us are lacking. None of us need a second filling of the Holy Spirit. You have Him. If you've believed upon Jesus Christ, you have all the Spirit you need. And the way that we begin to live that way practically is to remember who we are and to remember why we are who we are. The way to begin to live that way is not to look for new techniques and new trends and new books and ten steps to this and four steps to this and five ways to a better life. The way to live that way is to remember what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You need to have a changed worldview. And the only way you have a changed worldview, the only way your thinking is changed into the right way is to have it renewed by the truth, renewed by the Scriptures. Otherwise, you will be conformed. You will be shaped and molded by that which is of the world, which your flesh loves. And so if we are going to begin to live as we are being commanded to live down in verses 9 and following, then we have to have that as the bedrock. We have to have that as the foundation stones. And we are going to return to that foundation time and time and time again. So that by the time we get to the end of Romans, you're going to say to me, how is the Christian life lived? And you're going to quote Romans 12, 1 and 2. You're going to say, I have to start there. I cannot forget that. Why? Because the clear testimony of the gospel depends upon it. Because if we are not living according to those principles in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, then the collective testimony of this body right here, the church, Fellowship Bible Church, who is here in Chester, New Hampshire, the collective testimony of us, the testimony that we will be reflecting to the watching world will be a disfigured picture of Christ. It will be a disfigured gospel. It will be a facsimile of the true and full gospel. And if we are not living this way in our own individual lives, as we walk before God, as we carry out our Christianity, then our personal testimony is one of hypocritical love of God. And the saving gospel is hidden to others who see us. Why? Because what people will see in us is only a claim of truth. It's a claim of a salvation, but it's a salvation of our own making. It's an obedience that is based upon our own definition rather than what God has declared it is a life of quote-unquote moralism rather than self-sacrifice for God. 
if we are not living by the principles that are here in Romans chapter 12. Yes, it's that important. It's that important. And so Paul exhorts us, all of us who are professing believers to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Remember that back in verse 3? For through the grace given me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And when we really boil it down, when we think about the Christian life and when we think about difficulties in the Christian life, especially within the church, that really is where the problem lies, isn't it? That really is the issue. Rather than living a self-offering life, we, from our old life, far too easily allow ourselves to be victims of our own unchanged thinking. And what do we do? We exalt self. It really doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's public or private. It really doesn't matter whether it's in the church or in our own personal families or whether it's in the world or in the workplace in which you work. It really doesn't matter. The the circumstances surrounding it do not matter. The packaging in which it's wrapped up in does not matter. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That causes all kinds of difficulty in relationships that need to see and be the recipients of the heart of God in the gospel. Now, we find here then in Romans chapter 12 numerous commands for us to follow. And as we look at verses 9 through 21, we're we're just taking these a bite at a time. Just one bite at a time. This is an elephant that we're eating. We cannot eat it in one fell swoop. So we're going to take it a bite at a time. And we've already heard Paul lay down two general principles for us, foundational principles for our self-offering life. We've indicated that these are general principles, right? Those general principles that are listed there right up at the top. And verses 3 through 8 is how we are to see ourselves in the body of Christ, how we are to view ourselves and our giftedness in the body. We've been gifted by God. It's according to the mercy and grace of God in which we are here. We are who we are by the grace of God, and therefore we are individual members of one another, says in verse 5. And now we are looking at our interaction with others in general. Not just the church, not just Christians, but Christian and non-Christian alike. And so those two principles were to love without hypocrisy, as we have learned already, we saw that. Verse 9, love without hypocrisy, have an unmasked love of God in the outworking of your life. It is a command to love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength. This is really Paul's way of saying what Jesus said in the Gospels, the fulfillment of the whole law is those two great commandments. In other words, be obedient to the commands of God. That's what Paul said. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere in obedience to the commands of God. This is a litmus test for our love to God. 
It's just like I read this morning in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know who the children of God are and the children of the devil. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when we love God, we love our neighbor as ourself. That's the second great commandment. So part of the outcome of the second general principle that we saw is this abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. If we love God without hypocrisy, the outcome of that is a, a hatred, an intense hatred of not only not doing what is evil, but not wanting it around us at all. Clinging, sticking to with our tightest bond to that which is good, that which is by quality Godlike, that which God would approve of. Now, we don't need to cover those things in detail again here this morning. If you want to get those more in your mind, go back and get the tapes online or the whatever they do it these days online somehow, digitally, video. Somebody puts me on video. I think that's got to be the most boring thing to watch, but. But I need to say this again, at least, when we, when we deal with this issue, right? Because it's futile to attempt, it's worthless to believe that you will be doing this or are doing this next principle that we're going to look at this morning if you are not first striving at living By way of your life's direction, remember we're not talking about perfection here, we're talking about desires and direction, we're talking about this upward drive that goes like this, that's why people ask me how's things going, I say smooth sailing, smooth sailing, right, this is the direction, but you're not going to be able to do this if you're not directionally under these first two foundational principles, loving without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil. In other words, without the foundation of those two, there's no way for us to exercise this second principle. No way. Why? Because we're already thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think if we're not exercising those first two principles. That's already there. And therefore, there's no capacity in that kind of thinking to think of others as we are commanded to think. Notice what this next principle is. New American Standard says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Some of you may have Bibles that say it this way. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. That sounds a bit clunky in how it reads. I think the better way to read it is the New American Standard. How in the world can we ever expect to follow this command? And that's what it is. This isn't just, hey, this would be a good way for you to live. Here's here's a better way than some other way. No, this is a command for us as Christians. And how are we ever going to expect to be following this command if we are not living a self-offering kind of life? 
if I'm not dying to self, if I'm not continually mortifying that which I exalt most often, if not all the time, which is me. How am I ever going to love somebody else when I love myself more? See, this is a monumental task. And if we know Christ, we've been equipped to do it. We're not lacking. We can't say that's too hard. We can't say, well, you know, I just can't do it. We must walk in it or it will not happen. Right? We cannot. The Christian life is not, I'll just let go and let God. No, it doesn't work like that. It's a monumental undertaking for us because of the war of our own self-love. The base meaning, by the way, it says here in verse 10, be devoted to one another. Base meaning of that word in the original language carries the whole idea of natural affection. Natural affection. Now I would dare say that many of us do not think of one another that way. We talk about loving one another, and that's right. And we talk about being together with one another, and that's right. But oftentimes it doesn't go to this depth. Because when we speak of natural, and this is the idea in this word of devotion, or be devoted to one another in the original language, when we speak of natural, what is meant is that which is an affection that is opposite of affection that is based on some kind of circumstance. You see, we have good circumstances and we say, oh, I love that. Well, that's not natural affection. That's affection based upon something that took place or something that's likable or something that feeds to whatever it is you're desiring at the time. So in a simple sense, Paul is saying to us as Christians is that our relationship with one another... Now take just a nanosecond and look around. We're talking about the people in this church. We're talking about not just your spouse. We're talking about the people that sit four rows from you who you don't really know that well. We're talking about those who when you walked in today or drove in the parking lot, you went, really? They're here again? Really? I was hoping I wouldn't see them today. See, what Paul is saying for us as Christians, both in the local body and also Christians that are in other local bodies, that our love for one another is not to be merely superficial. It's not to be merely based upon circumstance, that we have a love for one another because we all come to the same place. We're all in the same church. And we call each other brothers and sisters. Paul says, no, 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 no. We are not just like the world. We are not to be liking each other because we are associated with each other. 
because we're part of the same church? No. What Paul is saying is that we have to go far beyond that. What he's talking about here, what God is commanding us here, goes far beyond that. What he is saying is that the love that we have for each other is to have the same character quality. It is to be of the same kind of love, that natural love, that love that we have naturally for our physical families. Now, there's people in my physical family that do a whole lot of bad things that I don't really care for often, but I still love them. They're my family. In fact, here's how one pastor put it years ago. Quote, love the brethren of the faith as though they were your brethren in blood. Unquote. Now look at that person that you didn't want to see today with those eyes. Love the brethren in the faith as those who were your brethren in blood. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what does that imply to me practically? What does that mean to me by way of implication in how I deal with others? Because this is a command. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So we have to ask ourselves, am I doing that? As a Christian, as one who's in the body, as one who's part of this local body, am I doing that? And if not, why? Why? And therefore, how do I begin to do that? How do I begin to do that? And when I begin to ask myself those questions, if I'm being honest with myself, it becomes rather obvious that there are areas that need fixing. There are areas in my life that need adjusting. There are areas in my relationship whereby I'm not really following this command. In other words, if I'm to love my Christian brothers and sisters as though they were my blood brothers and sisters, then I have a lot of work to do. If I'm being honest. And I think we can all see this, at least on the surface. That if, if we were doing this just in evangelicalism, if we were doing this as Christians in evangelicalism as a whole, if we were thinking this way, if we were processing this way, as God is intending us to process, there would be a whole lot less bickering and backbiting in the church. There'd be a whole lot less personal irritation in the church. So how do we begin to do this? Well, we already know that the only way to start to do this is to remember the principles of verse 1 and 2, right? That's the only way to start. Offer yourself a living sacrifice. Start there. Die to yourself. Stop exalting yourself. Stop thinking about you. That's the place to start. We'll never obey the commands without first remembering and actually embracing those truths. Why? Because being devoted to one another as Christian brothers in brotherly love 
isn't going to be easy, is it? It's not easy. We can't rely on some kind of made-up feeling. We, you cannot rely on waiting for me to become likable. That may never happen. I can't wait for you to become likable. Likeability isn't going to cover it. Likeability toward others as a foundation never works. Why? Because feelings come and go. You have feelings today and maybe not feelings tomorrow. Today you like me, tomorrow you don't. In fact, that even happens in your own physical family today. You have a a greater likableness towards your brothers and sisters in your own physical family, and tomorrow you wake up and go, "Eh, I'd rather be alone today. I'd rather not be with them. That's what happens with us. Sometimes we wake up, the feelings just aren't there. But I still have to love them. So in order to begin to love each other in this way, we have to realize that as a Christian, when we were born again, when we were given a new nature, every other Christian was given given the same. When they were born again, they were given a new nature. And when we were born again and we were given a new nature, guess what God did with us? We each started a new life, and we each started a new life in a new family. We're in a new family. We're out of the world. We're no longer of the world, even though we're in it. We're in a new family, and therefore each and every Christian is part of that same family. So that pastor got it right. We're not just to think of them as our blood. They are. We are related to one another. We're related to one another, not just for this life. We're related to one another forever. We better start liking each other. Each one of us is now actually actually related to each other. In fact, Jesus made this very clear. Very clear. Go back to Mark chapter 10 just for a moment. I just want to highlight this for us. We we went over this several years ago when we were studying through Mark, but I just want to make this point. I want to highlight this point for us because it's so important. Because in Mark 10, the disciples are concerned about what they've given up to follow Christ. Right? He talks about a rich man, the difficulty of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven, and how impossible that is. And, and the disciples are struggling with all this grand truth that Jesus is teaching them. They say, well, what about us? We've given up family and homes and friends. I mean, we've, we've given up everything to follow you. And here's what Jesus says to them. Beginning in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Remember where we're sojourning. And in the ages to come, eternal life. Let's just boil that down into a, a smaller way of saying what Jesus is saying. Listen, you will not lose anything. Listen, guys, because you become followers of me, Jesus says, listen, it's true that at times you'll be disowned by your physical family. That's true. It's true in some ways, especially in emotional ways, you're going to lose your kids at times. Sometimes your spouse will disown you. Your parents may not care for you as they once did because you came to know Jesus Christ. All of those relationships may fall. Some of them may even end. But Jesus says, it's okay. That's okay. Because you now have in your new family brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in close relationships like you've never had before. You've got, you have more brothers and sisters than you ever could ask for. You have mothers and fathers and those ahead of you and those behind you and relationships that you could never have in your physical family. You will not lose. It will be made up to you many, many, many times more. You say, why? Because you've entered into the family of God. You're in the family of God. You have all these new relationships. You see, that, that, that goes way beyond the fickle feelings of liking and disliking. Way beyond that. I am so thankful for that. I mean, I went halfway across the globe where Jason Bebo is right now, and I taught with people who claimed to know Jesus Christ. They, we were of the same family. We couldn't speak the same language. We couldn't do any of that, but we, we knew who we were. We were of the same family. And guess what? They protected me as a blood brother from the potential authorities that could throw me in jail. They didn't know me from Adam. Not physically. But we were family. You see, this is the same truth that Paul reminded the Ephesian believers of in Ephesians 2. The same exact truth. He says to the Gentile believers, you are no longer strangers. You're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You're not outside anymore. Now you're inside. You're no longer just somebody acquaintance. Now you're part of the family. You are one of us. That's what Paul is saying to us here in Romans 12. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, as Christians, we belong to the same family. We're of the same family. And so we should feel about those in our family the same way we feel about our natural family. We should look around this room and see one another and see them with that kind of preciousness. We're not just acquainted with each other. We're family. We're family. 
And once we realize that, once we realize that, once we embrace that, once we internalize that in our own hearts, we're going to start to live with one another a whole lot differently. When we're family, we think differently about each other. When we're family, we, we, we overlook things that we refuse to overlook in others. You got brothers and sisters in your natural family, you got siblings and parents, and then they do things. You just overlook those things. Yeah, they may irritate you. Yeah, they may get on your nerves, but you know what? You, you love them anyway. Listen, there isn't one of us who didn't come here with quirks. We're all broken. We all got issues. I remember several years ago, sadly, I was talking with a friend whose family had broken apart. And the mother was really having some issues in her own heart pridefully. And one of her five sons said to her, Mom, listen, you got issues. <laughs> I thought, what a refreshing thing. What a refreshing thing to know. We all have issues. We're not just acquainted with one another. But when we know that, when we know we're family, we'll overlook certain things, quirks, idiosyncrasies, things that bother us. We'll be willing and ready to assist when there's genuine needs. And most importantly, we'll be ready to assume the best of each other rather than the worst. Paul said to the Corinthian church this, whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. That should be true of us. We're going to hear that command later. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, verse 15. How do you rejoice with those who are rejoicing when they're out overshadowing your glory? How do you weep with those who weep when you feel like you're just never getting your needs met? Well, the only way to do that is to remember this, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. Why? Because this is a family relationship. Nothing can happen without the whole being affected by it. Here's how one commentator put it, quote, if we find that at certain times brothers and sisters are difficult and they do things which we cannot understand, then we don't condemn them as outsiders. We treat them exactly as we would treat natural relatives who are doing the same kinds of stuff. Unquote. You see, that's just the first part of verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's just the first time. We're, we're actually family. But notice the second part. This is, this is the part that drives the nail into the coffin for us. Give preference to one another in honor. That may seem obvious, but, but we need to ask, what's honor? What is honor? It's not a word we hear much today. The original word carried the idea of value. Value attached to an object that was being appraised. The value attached to something being appraised. Sometimes I have the opportunity in my mindless time to turn on the TV to one of those shows that goes around and searches for junk in people's barns and yards and things like that. At least what I call junk. 
And they take it somewhere, they go, oh, look at this grand piece of stuff. Oh, man, this is awesome. And they take it somewhere and they get an appraisal on it. They get somebody to place value or share with them what the value is. Oftentimes, I'm surprised at the high value they find. And think, man, I should start collecting junk. My wife's glad I'm not. Well, this is what honor is. It's, it's value assessed in examination or after examination. That's the kind of honor that Paul is speaking about here. And he applies that principle to our relationships with each other. And yet, the idea is the honor of a value, and yet we're not the ones who get to do the examining. In other words, the value is inherent. It's an inherent value because of who they are in Christ. Because they're a brother and sister in Christ. It's an inherent value that God has placed upon them because God has saved them. And so the emphasis here is on the high value of one another. What we think of others, that's the idea. How we think of others, how we think of their usefulness and their giftedness. And so he says here, notice that we are to give preference. Give preference. What's that mean? Well, preference means lead the way. That's the idea. Lead the way. It's the idea of of this. Be in the lead when it comes to giving preference to others. You be in the lead. No way for others to do that. No, you be in the lead when it comes to giving preference. In other words, all of us should be, when when I think about that, I think about, man, wouldn't that be great in the church if everybody was fighting, fighting to get to the place where they're giving preference to others. That's not normally what happens. What happens typically in evangelicalism, it seems, is that we're all fighting to get preference, but we're not fighting to give it. Paul says, no, no, if you're going to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, then you are to be giving the lead. You are to be leading the way in assessing and giving and placing upon others honor. So think about it with me. Paul is saying about this new family that we are in, he's saying about our relationships within this new family, make sure that you're always first in giving preference. Jesus said, he who is greatest among you is what? Servant of all. You want to be great? Then get low. In other words, lead others, go before others in your desire and practice of showing respect and value to one another. That's what he's saying. So here we are. Here we are in the Christian church. We've already seen verses 3 through 8 that we're all gifted. We all have a place. We all have a gifting from God. Nobody is a nothing in the family of God. And Paul says, in effect, learn to place value. Learn to realize the value of others and be first in line to give them honor. 
He's not talking about accolades. He's not talking about give them a big award and you know, give honor where honors due. Obviously, we see that in the text. He's not talking about that. He's just saying, look, lead the way in, in, in valuing them. Lead the way in valuing them. You be the leader in that. And so it really comes down to this, doesn't it? It really comes down to this, doesn't it, in the church? Personal relationships, interpersonal relationships, dealing with one another, thinking about things. What is our attitude toward others? That's the idea. What is your attitude toward others? Rightly evaluate yourself and then others. And rightly honor. Do you know what Paul's really saying? I mean, think about it. Salient point. There's no place in the Christian family for pride. There's just no place for it. There's no place for it. We ought to abhor it when we see it. We ought to abhor it in ourselves when we see it. There's just no place for pride in the Christian life. And when someone in your family, a Christian family, disparages you, when someone puts down your giftedness in the church, don't allow pride to go to work. Don't allow pride to go to work. Why? Because we know that what we have is from God anyway. I didn't make it. My gifts are not mine. God gave them to me. And while that person may see some kind of deficiency in me, I'm so thankful they don't see the deficiencies I see in me. There shall be no way that they could ever offend me by seeing some deficiency in me because God sees them all and He still uses me. So why should I be offended that they see some small deficiency in me? I know many, many more deficiencies in me. See, when we have a right estimate of ourselves, we'll have a right estimate of others. That's not false humility. That's, that's an estimate of yourself before God and what God has given to you. You see, we'll give preference to one another in honor when we have a right estimate of ourselves. Why? Because self is the great curse. The exaltation of self. A wrong view of self. In fact, a wrong view of self is probably the source of nearly all relational troubles. You can boil it down to that. You just think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Doesn't matter if it's in your home or in the church. That's what it is. I deserve better. That's what we say. I deserve better. Well, that, that wasn't Christ's attitude. Christ could have easily said that to Pilate as he stood there before him, being condemned by Gentile men whom he created. He could have said, wait a minute, I deserve better. You know who I am? He didn't say that. He just said, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you by God above, by my Father. See, what's the cure for an overestimation of self? What's the cure for an underestimation of others? What's the cure, as it's said sometimes in the young youth groups today or youth culture today, when you think you're all of that in a bag of chips? What's the cure to that? 
Well, here's the cure. Answer this question. How do you explain the difference? How do you explain the difference between you and them? If you're so good and they're not, how do you explain the difference? What makes you different from others? And then read this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, beginning in verse 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, how do you answer that question? How do you answer that? None of us are anything without the grace and mercy of God. So if you're trying to explain the difference between somebody and you as if it's you, you did something, you elevated yourself, oh, look at me. How do you explain the difference? The only difference between you and them is the fact that grace of God upon you has gifted you. It wasn't yours in the first place. And so to exalt self in any relationship is foolish. It's foolish. And so what What's Paul put before us over the last several weeks? What has he laid out for us? First, as Christians, just bask in the overwhelming reality that any of us are Christians at all. First, just bask in that. Just swim in that pool. Let that just rest upon you with all of his glory weight that you are saved at all. Because if we lose the amazement of that fact in our minds and our hearts, then we're already losing to the enemy of self-love. We're already on the road to that. We're only different because of the mercy of God. And secondly, we ought to be amazed that God uses us in the work of His ministry just as He's gifted us to be used. We ought to be amazed at that, no matter how grand or how ungrand that is in our estimation. It ought to amaze us, first of all, that God saved us, and secondly, that He uses us. That ought to just shock us away from self. That ought to be the stone thrown at the mirror of self. It's all of God's grace. And the closer we are to God in living, the closer you walk in the shadow of the holiness of God, the more you are amazed that God would use you at all. The more you are shocked that God would say to you, I'm going to use you in this. But God, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. We're we're dirty people. What, What are you talking about? Because it's all about God, not about you. It ought to amaze us because we know just how sinful we are each and every day. And I think if we start with just those first, those two truths right there, the amazement that we are saved at all, the amazement that God uses us at all, if we have that in our hearts and minds, 
then we are well on our way to rightly devote ourselves to one another in brotherly love. We're, we're well on the road of giving preference to one another in honor. We're just instruments of God's mercy and grace. And when we see ourselves rightly, then we'll be humbled. We'll be humbled by that. And nobody's going to be able to actually offend us. Nobody. The church will be a harmonious place. The church will be a place unlike any other place you've ever been. It will be a family unlike any other family. It'll be a place where the gospel is not just heard, but the gospel is seen. Seen. Well, if you still have air in your air tank, you save it for next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the richness of what this text means by what it says. We're thankful for the conviction that we feel to the depth of our very soul in realizing how we lack, not because of you, but simply because we have lived such superficial lives that we've attached ourselves at times to the thing called Christianity, but we really haven't understood to fully begin to live out what you mean by being brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is damaged. The gospel is hidden. Please forgive us for doing that. Please forgive us for not embracing these things and exalting ourselves and looking out at everybody else and saying how they should treat us when we are not even loving you without hypocrisy. What grand truths, Lord, that you have given us. What richness, what depth. Help us to embrace these things. Help our lives to be transformed as our mind is renewed, as we are thinking differently about it, and then putting it into practice. Expose to us those areas of our life where we need shoring up, where we need to be changed. For you are a gracious God. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. And so we would ask that you would do that even when it hurts. Thank you for loving us like that. We praise you for our salvation in this new family we're in. For the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.